Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, again, we're having a chat about the Roman Republic, the famous realm from ancient history that grew from a small city-state on a hill to expand across the Mediterranean Sea and much of Western Europe and beyond. The Roman Republic is extremely famous uh, in its own right, but also as the precursor of the potentially more famous Roman Empire, which, of course, we'll be covering next week. Don't you worry. Um, and the story of the Republic's growth is is really fascinating. Rome began as a kingdom, uh, but after overthrowing and exiling its king, it first had to contend with local neighbouring enemies that sought to conquer it. And after seeing them off and securing its survival, Rome expanded across the Italian peninsula and then beyond, even further, taking the fight to Carthage in North Africa uh, and to Macedon and Greece to the east. And as the years passed, Rome expanded to cover territory from modern-day Portugal in the west all the way to modern-day Turkey in the east, from modern-day Belgium in the north to modern-day Egypt in the, and also ancient-day Egypt, I guess. Egypt hasn't changed too much in terms of nomenclature and terminology used there, so good on you, Egypt, sticking around so long. Anyway, Rome would expand further, of course, uh, after transitioning to become an empire, but that's obviously for next week. But even in its uh, pre-imperial days, the Roman Republic was a, a vast and mighty realm. During its time, uh, the Romans developed marvellous technology. They built roads and aqueducts. They enacted important social and legal reforms that have gone on to be very influential even in today's society. However, of course, there is another side of this coin. It was far from a perfect society. There was class conflict, enormous inequality, poverty, oppression, constant warring, uh, both internally and externally. So um, there's a lot going on, suffice to say, with the story of the Roman Republic and indeed the empire. And this story is critical in understanding the broad context of history in this region, in Europe especially, where the influence of the Romans is most strongly felt, but throughout the Mediterranean, in the Near East, in places like Anatolia, uh, uh, in in the, the Eastern Mediterranean, again, places like Egypt, the, the impact of the Romans is very difficult to overstate. So today, we're going to take a whirlwind tour across the historical breadth of the Roman Republic. We'll try not to get too much in the weeds here. Uh, I do get 
so many emails asking to cover more stuff from ancient Rome. Hopefully, this overview is of interest to, to, to listeners out there. I do, I do get very specific with some topics, so uh, it'll be good fun today to whiz through something a bit more generally. Anyway, as ever, so much to get across, of course, so let's not waste any more time. Let's get stuck in, see how we go with the story of the Roman Republic. Next week, we'll continue the story with the uh, with the story of the Roman Empire. But I think this isn't quite a part one, part two situation. Uh, these stories are going to uh, are going to stand on their own on their own two feet. So here we go. <clears throat> going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to seven fifty three BCE. Now I will remind you that we are BCE before the Common Era. This entire episode takes place before the Common Era. Uh, which means that when we go forward in history, numbers of years go down, not up. So 753 followed by 752. Uh, old listeners will be across this, but always, always good to remind people BCE numbers uh, count down when we go forward in time. Anyway, the reason we start at 753 BCE is because that is the legendary founding date of the city of Rome. And to tell you this story, we briefly go from the world of facts and, and historical certainties to the world of myth and legend. You may have heard of the stories of Romulus and Remus, two brothers who were apparently the sons of Mars, the Roman god of war, uh, directly ripped off from the Greek Ares. Now, these boys were abandoned in the woods. They were taken in by a wolf, then raised by a shepherd. Then they grew up and established rival cities on opposing hills, became bitter enemies. And when Remus attempted to attack Romulus' city by jumping over its wall... Uh, he was killed by his brother. Romulus' city, it was obviously the one that survived after Remus died. And to this day, his city still bears his name, Rome, after Romulus. But of course, none of that is true. The wolf, the shepherd, the jumping over walls, the being the sons of a god, all just made up stories. Uh, and the year in which the city is said to have been founded, 753 BCE, also similarly made up. In fact, most of the early history of Rome is shrouded in mystery. We know that it was a kingdom. We know that it was an elective monarchy. But outside of this, the line between history and myth, extremely blurry for most of the history of the Roman kingdom before it became a republic. We do end up on a somewhat steadier historical footing in the year 510, uh, or perhaps 509, the year after. Not sure. The sources I read were a little, little conflicted on the exact year, but it doesn't matter. A lot of this is probably semi-legendary as well. Anyway, it was uh, it was around this time, in any case, that the last king of Rome, a bloke whose name was Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, it was around this time that he was overthrown and exiled from the kingdom. Tarquin the Proud, as he's sometimes known, uh, he didn't do too much to be proud of. He abused power. He was extremely unpopular. Uh, eventually, the Roman army, according to popular legend, uh, led by a bloke named Lucius Junius Brutus, rose up against him and forced him into exile. And this left, obviously, a power vacuum that needed to be filled. And it was the Roman Senate, which at this stage was little more than an advisory council that was responsible for electing kings for life and not much else. Uh, the Roman Senate decided to abolish the kingship altogether and instead replace it with a new system, a system of consuls elected for one-year terms. And so... The Roman Republic was founded with this system of two consuls of equal power, both with veto power over the other. This was designed so they could be a check on each other's power. Uh, and the Senate, broadly speaking, remained as little more than an advisory council in this period of Roman history. It would gain more power as the years passed. Anyway, much of the earlier history of the Roman Republic is one of struggle. For survival, Tarquin the Proud raised an army. He had a few cracks at taking his throne back, all of which failed. And outside of Tarquin, 
Rome had plenty of other regional enemies. It's little more than a city-state at this early point in its history. It was fighting for its very existence against ambitious and opportunistic neighbours who saw it at a moment of, of, of weakness. But eventually, I mean, Rome survived these onslaughts from, from the exiled king and its other aggressive neighbours and eventually became an aggressive neighbour itself. Uh, into the 5th century BCE, Rome undertook a few, a few campaigns of expansion of its own. Neighbouring cities fell to the Romans during this period, known as the Roman-Latin Wars, and Rome expanded from being a single city to being the dominant power throughout Latium, the region immediately surrounding the city. And as we get into the 4th century BCE, Rome has conquered a strip of the western coast of the Italian peninsula that spanned from the lands immediately north of Rome all the way down to Naples in the southeast. So not all that big, relatively speaking, when we look at the future breadth of the the Republic and the Empire, but still a, a significant fraction of the Italian peninsula. And of course, it only got bigger from there. And as the, as the Roman realm expanded and developed, so too did its society. Republic society in Rome was, was very heavily stratified. It was divided between the ruling patrician families, the politically elite aristocrats who dominated the Senate and the consulships and other major political and military positions. And underneath them were the plebeians or the plebs, commoners of varying degrees of wealth. This included farmers and craftspeople and merchants, basically everyone else who wasn't a, a, a high-level aristocrat. Now, the plebs had very limited political power, and the only real way that they could uh, get the patricians to listen to them was by, was by going on strike, just walking out, leaving Rome as a block and letting the rich fend for themselves until they realised that they didn't want to do all the work that the plebs did and so relented and, and gave in to what the plebeians were demanding at, at, at various points. These strikes led to the plebs being allowed to do things like elect their own political representatives called tribunes. Uh, and eventually the Senate itself was opened up to include plebeian representatives as well. Even so, conflict continued between the patricians and the plebeians. Class struggle has not gone anywhere in over 2000 years. Uh, and this was a defining factor in the history and the development of the Roman Republic. We'll come back to it in just a little bit. Anyway, we're halfway into the 4th century BCE now. The Romans have defeated their enemies across Latium. They have increased the territory that they control, and they are eyeing off other regions now. In the back half of the 4th century, the Romans fought the Samnites to the west, and then later the last of their Etruscan neighbours to the north. And these campaigns... They had their, uh, their back and forths, but Rome eventually emerged victorious. And as we move now into the 3rd century BCE, Rome is the dominant power on the Italian peninsula. Not the only one, by no means the only one, as we'll come to in a sec, but certainly the most powerful realm in, uh, in the peninsula, as I say. But uh, it wasn't just external change and territorial development and all the rest of it that defined this period of Roman history. No, um, it, there was also significant internal change. And we'll, we'll, we'll come to some stuff now that Rome is very, very famous for indeed. Uh, it was during this time, for instance, that Rome began some major infrastructure programs, uh, namely the first Roman aqueduct was built, as, as well, uh, importantly, as the very first Roman road, the Via Appia, or the Appian Way. The Appian Way, named after Appius Claudius Secus, the bloke who oversaw its construction, was the first road built by the Romans to help transport troops beyond its borders, and it is still around today. It's been restored and it's been maintained. Cars can even drive on some parts of it, which I bet Appius never saw coming. 
But the much more important internal change, even if it isn't quite as famous, uh, the much more important internal change that took place was political, as the plebeians fought for and won more political power from the patricians. They won for themselves high political offices. Prominent plebeians uh, used these offices to seek reform in areas such as land rights, debt, political representation. Again, a lot of back and forth as patricians and plebeians fought for power, but I think it's fair to say that by the time we get to the 3rd century BCE, the plebs have done pretty bloody well for themselves. Uh, political reform saw the creation of powerful political offices like the caestor, the censor, the dictator, all with different powers. Um, and popularly elected plebeians ended up holding many of these offices, and they used them to enact changes that saw the rights of the plebs expanded. Although, I have to say, this did create another political subclass, if you like, wealthy and powerful plebs who sometimes fell afoul of their own laws that were designed to restrict the power of the patricians. Sounds like they ended up a little bit like the pigs in Animal Farm. Anyway, this unique Republican government system, it was at times chaotic and dynamic and unpredictable, but it did spur the growth and the expansion of Roman power across the Italian peninsula and ultimately far beyond, as we'll come to. Rome expanded further south in the 3rd century and came into conflict with Greek colonies in and around Tarentum, down near the sole of Italy's boot. Uh, This is the war that you actually might remember from episode 126, History's Weirdest Deaths, get across it, when the Greek Pyrrhus of Epirus went to war with Rome. Pyrrhus scored what were, technically speaking, victories, but they ended up costing him very dearly, and it's from him we get the term Pyrrhic victory, meaning, of course, a victory that comes at such a cost that it may as well have been a loss. Uh, The Roman Republic fought Pyrrhus as he attempted to uh, defend his Greek cousins in Tarentum, and and despite losing all the battles they fought against him, if only technically, they were able to replenish the losses that they sustained with troops and whatever else, uh, and ultimately turned on him, kicked him out of the uh, Italian peninsula when he realised that he couldn't afford to win any more battles against them, and so the Romans won a thoroughly non-Pyrrhic victory in the Pyrrhic War. Pyrrhus lost the Pyrrhic War in 275 BCE, and then three years later in 272, he died when an old mum chucked a roof tile at his head, and this left Tarentum without any allies. Nothing stood in the way of the Romans moving in and claiming the rest of the Italian peninsula for themselves. In 272, the Roman Republic therefore spanned from the Arno River in the north, where today you'll find Pisa and Florence, all the way down to the southern tip of the peninsula. Not too bad, really, when two and a half centuries ago it was little more than a city on a hill with a dickhead for a king. But as we know, the Roman Republic grew to span most of the Mediterranean and much of Western Europe, so there is a lot of expansion left to go beyond the Italian peninsula. And this expansion began with a series of famous wars that took place starting in the 3rd century BCE, wars we've actually already touched upon a little bit on the show, the Punic Wars. The Carthaginian Empire had begun also as a little city-state, Carthage, in modern-day Tunisia, part of the uh, today it's part of the Tunisian capital of Tunis, this old city, Carthage. And uh, like Rome, Carthage expanded well beyond its humble origins as a small city, spreading across the coast of North Africa, the south coast of Iberia, and into Mediterranean islands like Corsica and Sardinia. And initially, Carthage and Rome got on very well. They even fought as allies during conflicts like the Pyrrhic War. But as Rome looked to expand into Sicily, much of which was held by Carthage, the two realms finally came into conflict in 264 BCE 
with the beginning of the First Punic War. Punic here meaning essentially just Carthaginian. Rome focused on building up a huge navy to challenge Carthaginian naval supremacy, and both sides won and lost many battles on the water as well as on land. On land, the Carthaginians were supported by mighty war elephants, which would have been a sight to behold. But before long, the Romans actually took the fight to Carthage itself. They sailed across the Mediterranean, they attacked and captured Carthaginian cities, to the point that the Carthaginians sued the Romans for peace. However, the Roman terms were so stringent that the Carthaginians told them, ultimately, to stick it up their asses, and instead they kept on fighting, and so the First Punic War continued. This was a good move. The Battle of Bagradus River saw the Carthaginians and the Spartan mercenaries that they had brought in absolutely crush the Romans, uh, in some cases quite literally, as here the Carthaginian war elephant was absolutely unstoppable. Over 13,000 Romans were killed out of a force of around 15,000, and this of course drove Rome out of Africa, for now at least. Rome pulled out of Carthage, uh, winning a huge battle on the water in the Battle of Cape Hermaeum as they retreated, but then disaster struck when most of the Roman fleet was sunk in a storm on the way back to Rome. This killed an estimated 100,000 Romans, an absolute catastrophe. After this, with both sides in bad shape, Carthage recovering from this Roman invasion and Rome attempting to recover from this massive loss of life after retreating from North Africa, both sides licked their wounds for a while, and then the fighting resumed in Sicily in 252. Once again, both sides were evenly matched and the war was very, very hard fought. Eventually, however, the Romans were able to rebuild their fleet and attack Carthaginian cities in Sicily from the water. And the Carthaginians were unable to answer. Once again, they sued for peace, and this time they did surrender. And in surrendering, they abandoned most of Sicily to Rome. But this peace agreement not only involved the loss of Sicily, it was extremely tough on Carthage. They were presented a bill for the war by the Romans, and as the Carthaginians attempted to pay off the the Romans as they were asked to, They couldn't then pay the mercenaries they had hired, and this was not an ideal situation because then the mercenaries went to war with Carthage instead. So this greatly weakened the Carthaginians and the Romans, never ones to miss an opportunity, used this position of weakness that Carthage was in to breach the peace treaty and seize the island of Sardinia from Carthage, betraying the agreement that the two realms had made. And this, you won't be surprised to learn, led to a fair bit of bad blood between Carthage and Rome and, as a result, ultimately also led to the Second Punic War. We talked about the Second Punic War all the way back in episodes 40 and 41. Hannibal Barker, get across. I'm not going to go into too much detail here. You should go back and and, and listen to those episodes for all the the good bits. But this was the war, uh, famously, in which Hannibal marched his elephants across the Alps and stunned the Romans by attacking them from the north, winning some of the most significant and famous battles of the ancient world. The Battle of Trebia, the Battle of Lake Trasimene, and of course the Battle of Cannae. These losses were catastrophic for Rome. However, 
The Romans clawed their way back into the war, spreading out their forces rather than meet the invincible Hannibal head-on. And as the years passed, the Romans moved to Iberia, modern-day Spain and Portugal, and made significant gains against Carthage there. And then, slowly but surely, drove the Carthaginians out of the Italian peninsula and gave chase when Hannibal withdrew to Carthage. Uh, and over there, in, in North Africa, in Carthage, the Romans finally defeated Hannibal at the Battle of Zama, which ended the Punic War in their favour. The peace terms this time around were even harsher than before. Carthage was on the brink of utter ruin after losing this second war with Rome. And it won't take me too long to tell you about the third and final Punic War. Carthage remained a hated foe of Rome even after this Roman victory. Uh, And the famous statesman Cato the Elder would end all of his public speeches by saying, loosely paraphrased, Carthago delenda est. Carthage must be destroyed. Didn't matter what he was talking about in the Senate. Didn't matter if he was talking about taxes or land reform or whatever. He would end every speech by saying Carthage must be destroyed. Some people were still so horny for war with Carthage to wipe it off the face of the map. And the opportunity to do this arrived halfway through the second century BCE as Carthage began to make a bit of a comeback after having been brought so close to ruin by the Second Punic War. The Romans weren't fans of this. They didn't like the idea that Carthage might rise up and challenge them again. And so, between 149 and 146 BCE, Rome sent troops over once again to take the fight to Carthage after Carthage broke the terms of the previous peace treaty. Never mind that, you know, Rome had done that after the First Punic War. That's fine. Not Let's not focus on that. But the peace treaty after the Second Punic War forbade Carthage from going to war with anyone, not just Rome, but anyone at all, without Rome's permission. So hostile neighbours were raiding Carthage, knowing that there wasn't really anything that Carthage could do to stop them or retaliate, until eventually Carthage did retaliate and started to kick some asses. And as soon as they did, the Romans got arced up about them breaking the treaty, mobilised their troops and sent them over the Mediterranean once again. The Carthaginians did what they could to defend themselves, but in the end, it was no good. In 146, the Romans took the city over, and in the course of a week, they absolutely destroyed it. They razed the city to the ground. They tore it brick from brick and killed, if you'll believe it, three quarters of a million people, and then took another 50,000 prisoner to be sold as slaves. So Carthage was, as Cato the Elder had hoped, utterly destroyed. And Rome did very, very well out of the destruction of not just Carthage, the city, but the entire Carthaginian empire. It effectively had removed the only real rival it had in seeking dominance over the Mediterranean. And on top of that, Rome had seized the southern half of Iberia while beating the Carthaginians. They had seized all of the Carthaginian holdings along the north coast of Africa as well. So the Roman Republic had expanded massively, and this wasn't the only area into which the Romans expanded either. While Rome was distracted fighting Carthage, their neighbours to the east, the Greeks, saw an opportunity to challenge Roman power. And so between 214 and 148 BCE, overlapping with both the Second and Third Punic Wars, Rome also fought the Macedonian Wars, and they did pretty bloody well in them too. The Macedonian king, Philip V, took the fight to Rome, but was ultimately unsuccessful, and Roman influence in the Greek world only grew and grew as the sun began to set on the Hellenistic period, this golden age that the Greeks had been enjoying. 
The complicated network of Greek kingdoms and city-states and colonies and alliances meant that Rome was very cleverly able to muscle in on the Greek heartlands by wheeling and dealing with the smaller realms, getting them on side, and using their help to fight the larger ones. And without getting too into the weeds about it all here, the end result was this. While the Greek world wasn't under the official authority of Rome, Rome dominated the political and military affairs of their eastern neighbours, and in practical terms, the Greek world well and truly came under the umbrella of the Roman Republic. Rome conquered the Kingdom of Macedonia in 148, then 146 saw the end of the Achaean War, the final conflict in the Macedonian Wars. In this war, the Romans destroyed the last alliance of the Greeks that were holding out against them, the Achaean League. They captured and sacked the city of Corinth, And then, just as they're done with Carthage, they annexed and assumed de facto control of Greece. Interestingly, however, while the Romans had dominated Greece militarily, it was the Greeks who well and truly dominated the Romans culturally. As I've mentioned before, the Romans pillaged and adapted Greek culture wholesale, and much of Roman culture is just effectively remixed Greek culture, something that was only strengthened and accelerated by Roman hegemony in Greece. Things like Roman art and literature and religion and so much more were all heavily influenced by the Greeks, and the Roman conquest of Greece is a big part of that. Anyway, it wouldn't be until the rise of the Roman Empire that Greece was properly and officially brought under Roman authority But it's safe to say that the Roman Republic effectively controlled Greece and much of the eastern Mediterranean after successfully waging the Macedonian Wars alongside the Punic Wars. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's review. By the time we get to the mid-2nd century BCE, the Roman Republic encompasses the entire Italian peninsula, the Alps to its north, the southern Mediterranean coast from modern-day Portugal all the way across to Greece, the northern coast of the Mediterranean that was formerly held by Carthage, and all the major islands in the Mediterranean, such as Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia. It is a very big realm, and it's only going to get bigger. But before we get to that, let's spend a bit of time talking about the internal affairs of the Republic rather than just the external goings-on. Roman society at this stage in its history, very interesting indeed. Uh, All the social conflict we talked about before between patricians and plebeians, between rich and poor, all of that still exists. It's still going on, of course. Class struggle is eternal. But I want to tell you more about the day-to-day lives of citizens living in Rome during this period of its history. Rome was 
broadly speaking, agrarian, meaning much of the population worked as farmers when they weren't being conscripted to fight in wars. And this agrarian focus that the Roman Republic had made things like land rights and access to water very important political issues in the Roman Republic and fueled much of Rome's expansion. The reason for this being that conquest meant more land for more Romans to settle and farm. For the average Roman, life revolved around family and religion. The oldest male was the head of each family. Everyone was under his authority within the family unit. Most Romans wore simple garments of wool and linen, usually tunics, uh, while the toga, which is obviously very famously associated with Rome, that was something of a status symbol. Senators wore white togas. High-ranking politicians could put a purple border around theirs, but for the most part, togas were generally worn by the rich and famous. Uh, Romans ate a reasonably varied diet, bread, obviously, but meat and fish and fruit and vegetables, all that sorts of stuff. Given, again, the fact that Rome was an agrarian society, fresh produce was very highly valued and a big part of, uh, of Roman food culture. And uh, they all drank wine. Everyone at every level of society, they drank wine and lots of it. It was very cheap and very plentiful throughout all of Rome. When it comes to their language, Romans obviously spoke Latin, but they spoke vulgar Latin, which isn't to say they were, you know, swearing all the time. Vulgar actually means common in this instance and is distinct from classical Latin. Classical Latin is the Latin that was used in formal settings, in literature and that sort of thing. And it's also the type of Latin that's taught today. They don't tend to teach vulgar Latin, even though that was the commonly spoken language back during the uh, the time of the Romans. Romans enjoyed art and literature and, of course, sports and entertainment, active pastimes like athletics, combat sports, equestrian events, as well as more passive things like board games, card games, dice games. All these things were very, very popular at all levels of Roman society. However, as I alluded to in the intro, Roman society still had some pretty harsh and unforgiving sides to it. Slavery was commonplace, for instance, and people such as prisoners of war and people in hopeless debt were bought and sold as slaves. Poverty was pretty widespread in Roman cities, particularly in Rome. Destitute people came to the city looking for work, and if they couldn't find it, they'd end up in dangerous slums where crime and theft and collapsing buildings and fire were all huge dangers. And additionally, this won't come as a surprise to anyone who is even remotely educated in history, women had a very rough lot. This is the case for the overwhelming majority of human history. They had no real political power. They were under the authority of men at every turn. They were married off for political or familial connections. Women could own land in their own right, they could seek divorce from their husbands, and they were able to attain important and powerful and influential religious roles. For instance, the highly venerated Vestal Virgins were enormously prestigious within Roman society. But for the most part, yeah, rough old go for women in ancient Rome, women in ancient more or less anywhere, fair to say. But even if Rome was just as backwards as the rest of the ancient world when it came to things like women's rights, it was a long way ahead of its time in other areas, such as engineering. Romans were incredible engineers, testaments to which can be found across much of Europe and beyond even today. Roman ruins are found everywhere from Britain to Spain to Turkey. The Romans built vast buildings, long roads and aqueducts, and they invented things like Roman concrete for use in construction. The Pantheon in Rome is the world's oldest and to this day still the largest unreinforced concrete dome. So as a 
powerful, advanced, expansionist society, the Roman Republic had a colossal impact on European history, something that continued into its time as an empire. But how did it go from empire to republic? Let's talk about the final years of the Republic and some of the key reforms and conflicts that saw the government shift as it did. As Rome grew, it faced new problems. The systems in place for social order didn't scale as the Republic spread across a continent, and discontent continued to fester amongst the lower social classes. We talked about some of the problems that Rome faced in episode 147, the servile wars, get across it. Slave rebellions, where people rose up against those enslaving them. The first servile war was in 138. It was followed by two more, one in 104, and the third in 73. And for details on them, have a listen to episode 147. They had pretty significant effects on the development of the Roman Republic. But this last century or so of the Republic was a time of great and tumultuous change as social and military reforms drastically shifted the landscape of Roman society. For instance, the Gracchi brothers were a pair of, well, brothers, obviously, Uh, that served as plebeian tribunes and attempted to undertake massive reforms within the Roman Republic, land reform, legal reform, taxation reform. Both these blokes wanted to make sweeping change to how Rome operated, and both of them were, believe it or not, killed for it. The political atmosphere was so heated and so reactionary that both these blokes lost their lives at the hands of their political opponents And this helped, interestingly, to normalise violence as a political tool within the late Republic. As for how much the Gracchi brothers actually achieved, well, historians still argue about that. They certainly did achieve a level of reform through legislation, but it's probably their role after their deaths as martyrs that influenced the course of Roman history more strongly. Their memories were invoked by both their supporters and detractors, After they died, Uh, they were either sacrificial heroes or dangerous agitators, depending on whom you asked. But they did change Roman politics forever, not just the reforms that they sought to achieve, but also in the way that their deaths altered the political climate in Rome. They made it more violent, more combative, and this set the stage for the last years of the Republic. But... They weren't the only reformists that are massively important in this period of Roman history. A supremely important reformer during the late Republic era was, of course, the Roman general Gaius Marius. From 107 onwards, the Marian reforms that he instituted sought to transform Rome's military from a rabble of conscripted farmers responsible for their own gear to an organized, professional, trained and equipped standing army. The Marian reforms introduced the legionary, the classic idea of the Roman soldier that you still imagine today when thinking about ancient Rome, and this saw Roman soldiers well-trained, well-equipped, and well-paid by the government. And, of course, this only contributed to Rome's military supremacy throughout the Mediterranean. These reforms led to strong legions of rigorously trained and fiercely disciplined soldiers, all but unstoppable in the face of most foes. The Marian reforms didn't just impact the military, however. The reforms had retired soldiers granted generous land packages in conquered regions, which of course only spread Roman cultural influence and authority further throughout its territories as these retired soldiers settled down to their villas in conquered lands. Additionally, and critically for the final part of our story, soldiers became loyal to generals, not to governments, and this was of huge importance as civil war ultimately 
engulfed Rome. In the first century BCE, conflict emerged within the Roman Republic. The civil wars were numerous and bloody, and the whole period is referred to as the crisis of the Roman Republic. It was a period, as I mentioned, of great violence. It was a period where generals acted like warlords with fiercely loyal soldiers behind them. So these reforms that had sought to improve Roman society in certain ways ended up altering it drastically in other ways that perhaps weren't foreseen by the people attempting to make these changes. We've talked about some of these conflicts before. You can go back to episode 175 and hear about how Marcus Licinius Crassus uh, played a role in Sulla's civil war, for instance. Uh, There is, of course, episode 205 about Julius Caesar, who fought, surprise, surprise, Caesar's civil war. But these people, these people like Caesar and Crassus and Sulla and Pompey and so many others, they all fought for control in Rome in the late stages of the Republic, even as Rome's territory expanded thanks to things like Caesar's conquest of Gaul and Pompey's expansion into Judea. The infighting didn't stop at any point back in Rome. Political alliances known as triumvirates sought to control the Republic. Factions emerged, battle lines were drawn up. And tensions between powerful Roman leaders like Caesar and Pompey reached all-time highs. The end result, of course, was that Julius Caesar was named an enemy of Rome by the Senate, and he crossed the Rubicon to invade the Roman heartlands in the year 49 BCE. And after a period of civil war, Caesar's civil war, Caesar emerged victorious and uncontested as the leader of Rome. He was famously assassinated when it seemed that he wanted to end the Republic and claim total authority over Rome for himself. And even though he never managed this feat before his death, in time, in a very short time, in fact, the Roman Republic would fall. And just as those murderous senators that assassinated Caesar feared, power in Rome would fall into the hands of a single person, an emperor, as the Roman Empire rose from the ashes of the Republic. The civil wars that followed Caesar's death, which we talked about in episode 191, Cleopatra Part 2, get across it, this was what destroyed the Republic once and for all. And when all the fighting was done, none stood in the way of the final victor, Caesar's adopted son and great-nephew, Gaius Octavius, known to history as Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. From the year 27 BCE, the Roman Republic was no more. From its humble beginnings as a city-state on the banks of the Tiber River, to expanding across the length of the Italian peninsula, to crushing its foes in Carthage and Greece, to absorbing most of the Mediterranean coast and much of Western Europe, the time of the Republic was now over. The Roman Republic had a massive influence on the course of history in Europe and the Mediterranean, from military to social to cultural affairs, on top of construction and engineering and technology. But now, under Augustus, with so much power concentrated in the hands of one person, it was no longer a republic. It became instead the Roman Empire. And as an empire, it grew and expanded, it changed and evolved, and became one of the most impactful realms in all of human history. And to hear all about it, from Augustus to the split between East and West to its ultimate and final collapse, be sure to tune in next week as we get across the history of the Roman Empire. 
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Roman Republic. Good fun to get across a topic like this, a big, broad, sweeping one in, in a general sense rather than going very deep on stuff. We, we tend to go into a fair bit of detail uh, with this show a lot of the time, so it was good to be a bit more general uh, for, for once. and Well, and for twice. Next week we'll be back with the history of the Roman Empire as well, so I hope I'll have your company then as we get across that. But in the meantime, of course, all the boring housekeeping stuff uh, to close out the show, halfhousehistory.net, use the contact form to get in touch. Let me know what you thought of this show. Uh, if you've got uh, feedback, if you've got comments or any questions or or indeed any other topic suggestions, uh, maybe other famous realms, empires, kingdoms, republics, whatever else that uh, it might be interesting to get across, please let me know and I'll add them to the list. Uh, quarter Us History is up and running. I've had a couple of emails from people saying that they haven't been able to access it. If it's not on your feed, you are still on the old feed. Uh, if you are having this issue, email me. Tell me what your uh, your podcast provider or platform is, and I'll, I'll try to get it fixed. But uh, if you use something like Spotify or iTunes or one of the bigger uh, podcast providers, Quarter Hours History will be there waiting for you. You should give it a go. If you haven't had a listen to Quarter Hours History, you should give it a crack. It's much closer in uh, in theme and style to the old episodes of Half Hours History from years ago. It's very silly. It's uh, it, it's a lot uh, a lot more ridiculous than the stuff that we tend to cover in the longer episodes. So uh, so give it a go and let me know what you think. If you can't wait to get your hands on these episodes, by the way, whether it's Quarter or Half Hours History. Head over to patreon.com. It's there you'll find early access to shows, behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, uncut episodes, and, of course, exclusive merch, uh, inclusive merch available via TeePublic. Head to the uh, head to the, the website, halfhousehistory.net. Click on the link there. You'll find the, uh, the merch available, ready and waiting for you to purchase. But look, best way to support the show, as I say every week, just by listening to it and by sharing it amongst friends, enemies, and people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. So thank you to everyone who is out there spreading the good word of half Us history and getting those numbers up and up every week. It's uh, it's a real privilege to be able to uh, beam this dumb show into your ear holes every week, and I certainly don't take it for granted. Thank you for being part of Half Us History and contributing to the success of this show. Anyway, see you back here next week as we chat about the Roman Empire. Until then, leaving you with a question about the Roman Republic. This one comes to us from Redditor Guyan Bush, who asks, Why was it called the Roman Republic? Didn't it generally stay in the same place? to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.